Have you ever asked yourself the question, why? Why am I still here? Perhaps some of you have loved ones who have gone before you already in the glory, and you've asked the question, why am I still here? Some people think, well, the reason why they're still here is because, well, they can grow to love God more. Well, surely if that was our primary purpose for remaining on this earth, surely it would make more sense to the Lord to take us to glory because then we'd love him perfectly. Other people say the main reason and the primary reason why we're still left on this earth is so that we can grow in likeness to Jesus Christ. And again, I would say if that was the main reason, surely it would make more sense for God to take us straight to glory because then we'd be perfectly like the Lord Jesus Christ. Other people may say, well, the primary reason for being on this earth is we may know God more. Well, I would say again, would it not make more sense for God to take us straight to glory so that we would then know him perfectly? Why is it that we're still here on this earth? What is our primary purpose for being here? What is it we can do here that we cannot do in glory? Well, you turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Matthew chapter 5. In the verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. What is the one thing we cannot do in glory but that we can do here? It's to let our light shine. He who is the light of the world to shine forth him in this world. To put it another way, in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 the apostle tells us, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The reason why you and I woke up this morning, the reason why you and I still have breath in our lungs, the reason why you and I are still on this earth and have not been taken to glory as God's people is because we have obtained mercy and God wants us to show that to other people. Another verse that shows us our purpose on this earth is Mark chapter 16 and the verse 15. Jesus Christ says to his disciples, Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is why we're still here. That is our primary purpose for living today. Now some, whenever they think upon that, that our purpose is to go and to preach the gospel, they see a problem. They'll say, well, you're a Calvinist. Do you not believe in the tulip? T, standing for total depravity. According to what you believe, men are unable to come to Christ. Do you not believe in limited atonement, the L of the tulip? Well, Christ only died for certain men, so why go and tell the gospel if Christ only died for certain men? Do you believe in irresistible grace, the eye of the tulip, that God will call these people certainly to himself, whether you do anything or whether you do not? So what is the point of us doing any work? The subject that I've been given this evening is evangelical Calvinism. And Reverend Harris has spoken to me about the subject and even about mentioning the ditches on either side, hyper-Calvinism on one side and Arminianism on the other side. What is it that we are to preach? You see, this is important. Because in the passage we read at the very beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, the Apostle Paul tells us 
Beloved, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What is it that Paul says is not in vain? What is it that Paul says is not empty and useless, and indeed as that term is used elsewhere in the New Testament, is a failure? What is it that's not a failure? Well, it's the work of the Lord. Now, what is the work of the Lord? The work of the Lord, of course, is that which is for the Lord. The great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. The work of the Lord is that which is not merely for the Lord, but it's that which is by the Lord. It's done in his strength. Psalm 127 verse 1, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And for us this evening, the work of the Lord is that which is from the Lord. It's what he has actually given us to do. In Isaiah 55 verse 11, God says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Nothing else in this world will prosper. Our whole purpose in living today is to preach the gospel. But what is it that we are to preach? Because if we fall off on one ditch or we fall off on another ditch, we're not actually doing the work of the Lord. And whatever we do will not prosper. It will be a failure. It will be empty and it will be vain. We must stick to what God has given. We're not to try to alter it. We're not to try to change it. We're not to try to say, well, I think this would work better. No, we're to do the work of the Lord. That which is for the Lord and love for him, that which is done in his strength by the Lord, but it's also that which is from him, what he's actually given us to do. To teach the truth that he's given us to teach. That's the only thing that God will bless. That's the only thing that God will use to fulfill this great commission. That's our only purpose, to teach what God has given. Nothing else. This evening, you and I cannot use anything else but God's truth to fulfill our purpose in life. You and I need not use anything else but God's truth whether it be gimmicks or anything else, our own ideas, our own philosophies, and either ditches on either side of the truth. Because God will not bless anything else. And you and I must not use anything but God's truth. Because God will only ever bless what's from him. He'll not bless human ideas and human suggestions and human philosophies. He'll only bless what is from him and what is the truth. Tonight, if you and I believe the doctrines of grace known as Calvinism, we believe the doctrines of grace are the truth of God, then Calvinism cannot be any hindrance to the salvation of souls and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. In fact, Calvinistic preaching is the only thing that God will bless. We cannot turn to anything else. So let us look at Calvinistic and evangelical preaching. I want to begin by looking at one of the ditches on either side that people can fall into. And that's what's known as hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism is a bit of a bad title. Because if Calvinism is true, anything that's hyper or extreme is still truth. But hyper-Calvinism is not truth. It really should be termed false Calvinism. But because it's known as hyper-Calvinism, I'm sure you can forgive me just for using it this evening so that nobody gets confused in what I'm referring to. I want to ask a number of questions. Whenever you and I go out to speak to people, whether it be our loved ones or whether it be our friends or whether it be uh, in, in preaching, 
Should all men, this is the first question, should all men be called to repent and believe the gospel? Should all men be called to repent and believe the gospel? You see, hyper-Calvinism, the ditch on one side of the straight line, says no, men should not be called to repent and believe the gospel. Not all men. You see, they'll, they'll use their logic like this. The non-elect, those whom God has not chosen salvation, they will never repent and believe the gospel. Therefore, as a result, they cannot repent and believe the gospel. Therefore, they, because they cannot repent and believe the gospel, they should not be called to do what they cannot do. That is, repent and believe the gospel. To the hyper-Calvinist, calling the non-elect to repent and believe the gospel is like calling a dog to meow, because that is that which is against its nature, or calling a cat to bark. It's calling a person to do something they cannot do. It's against their nature. And indeed, calling all men to repent and believe the gospel is a waste of time. And it's unfair to the person you're speaking to. But what is the truth? What does Calvinism teach? What does the Bible teach? Well, it does teach that the non-elect will never repent and believe the gospel. It does teach, truthfully, that the non-elect cannot repent and believe the gospel. But, Calvinism does teach that while the non-elect cannot repent and believe the gospel, they cannot because they do not want to repent and believe the gospel. If you want to turn to me, please, to John chapter 3. The reason people don't come to Christ is because they don't want to come to Christ. Their nature is against Christ, and they don't want him. In John chapter 3, in the verse 19, Jesus Christ is speaking, and he's given the great gospel invitation in verse 16. But in verse 19, Christ says, And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Men don't want the light of the truth because they don't want to be told their lives are evil. In the following verse, in verse 20, we read, For every one that doeth evil heareth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Men don't come to the light because they don't want to turn from their sin. The reason the non-elect tonight don't come to Christ is not so much because they cannot as they will not. They cannot because they don't want to. The fact they don't want Christ is the reason why they reject Christ. Calling men to repent and believe the gospel, in my opinion, is not like calling a dog to meow. It's like calling a dog to actually bark. That's why men were made. They were made to love God. Calling men to love and trust God is calling men to be what God made them to be. And it's therefore like calling a dog to be what God made it to be. The reality is sinful man chooses not to bark. Sinful man chooses to meow because... He is born a sinner and he's against God and he wants to run away from God. The light comes, but he wants to run away from God. That's why he doesn't come to God. He's bent away from God. Sinful man chooses to hate God and to run from God, which is rebellion. And if you want to turn to Romans chapter 1. A question that bugged me for a long time, is there such a thing as a genuine atheist? I would have talked to different people whenever I was in Belfast and also whenever I was at university and they would have said, you know, Paul, I would, have loved, I would love to believe in God, but you know what, there's just not enough evidence out there. And they're very kind and, and very nice people. And I always wonder, well, is there such a thing as a genuine atheist? 
In Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, we read these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and righteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. These verses make it clear that by conscience and creation, all men in this world, no matter who they are, no matter where in the world they're brought up, all men know the truth. They know that God is real. They know that God is holy. They know that God hates sin. They know that God is angry at sin. They know that God will judge sin. Every person in this world knows these truths. But yet we're told in verse 18 that all men hold that truth in unrighteousness. The word for hold means to hold down with intensity. In fact, it's used in Hebrews 10, 23, where we're told to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. You know how to hold, as Christians, our faith tight and strong. Hold it down and don't let it go. And yet we're told that the unbeliever, they see the reality of God in this world. They know that they're sinners before God. They know that God is angry with their sin and God will judge their sin. They hold that truth, but they hold it down. It's like a spring that wants to keep bouncing up. They keep suppressing. They keep pushing it down. They don't want to think about it. The lights come into the world, but men don't want to think about the light. They don't want to think about the truth. They keep pushing it down. God has made them to love the truth, but because of Adam's fall and their own sin, they now hate the truth. And they're born sinners, and they born hate the truth. No one seeks after God. They've all turned away. They've all done their own thing. And they want to keep doing it. So the question comes this evening that I asked you, should all men be called to repent and believe the gospel? Is that what you and I are to do to fulfill this great commission, to fulfill our purpose in living? The hyper-Calvinist says no, but true Calvinism says yes. John the Baptist was one who called men to repent and believe the gospel. Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ is the one who called all men to repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1.15, he said, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Peter, the apostle, was one who called men to repent and believe the gospel. In Acts 2.38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And he was speaking not just to the elect. He was speaking to all in Jerusalem at that day. In Acts 8.22, the apostle would speak to Simon the sorcerer, and he told even this man who was still in sin, he said, Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness. He called men to repent. Paul the Apostle was one who said in Acts 17, 30 and 31, that God now commandeth all men, or commandeth all men everywhere to repent. In Acts 26, 20, Paul speaking to the Gentiles indiscriminately he said that the Gentiles should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. If you and I had to fulfill our great commission, we must understand this. That while we believe that God is a people to save, and while we believe that the non-elect will never turn to the Lord, yet we are still to preach and call all men to repent and believe the gospel. The fact that the non-elect will not turn to God does not make them unaccountable. It makes them accountable. The fact they don't turn to God is because of their own choice. They don't want God. They run from God of their own choice. They're bent towards sin and they love it. 
we should still call all men to repent and believe the gospel. The second question I want to ask this evening is this. Should all men be offered God's mercy and grace? If you and I had to fulfill this whole purpose while we are existing on this earth before God takes us to glory, we need to know, should all men be offered God's mercy and grace? Again, talking about the two ditches, on one ditch, the hyper-Calvinists will turn around and say, no, you should not offer all men God's mercy and grace. But true Calvinism says you should. You see, the hyper-Calvinist says, well, hold on a moment, think about this logic. Christ has not died for all men, but the elect only. Christ therefore has not salvation for all men, but the elect only. So Christ's salvation must therefore not be offered to all men, but to the, to the elect only, because Christ does not desire all men to be saved, but the elect only. So you should not tell all men, and offer all men, God's grace and God's mercy, because Christ doesn't desire it for all men. And the result of that hyper-Calvinist logic is this. Either the gospel is not preached at all by the hyper-Calvinist, for they do not know who the elect are, and therefore... Until they know the elect are, well, they can't actually preach. And while there's few hyper-Calvinists go that extreme, you know, that's the one that spoke to William Carey all those years ago and told him to sit down. If God was going to save the heathen, he would do it without William Carey or indeed without him. But another reality for the hyper-Calvinists, the majority of them, is that the gospel will only be offered to those, God's grace and God's mercy will only be offered to those who show signs of the Spirit working in them. We want to see the result of that in a minute or two. But to the hyper-Calvinist, if we're to fulfill our great commission, we're not to tell the gospel to all people. We're not to offer God's mercy, God's grace, and God's forgiveness in Christ to all people. We're not to do that. Only to those who who are showing signs of the Spirit actually working in them and drawing them to Christ. But what does the Bible teach? What is our commission? The Bible teaches that all men should be offered God's mercy and grace. And personally, I find this a thrilling reality. It is true that as a Calvinist, we believe that Christ has not died for all men in paying debt for their sins, but the elect only. It is true that as a Calvinist, we believe that Christ does not have salvation for all men, but the elect only. But as a Calvinist, We believe that it is not true to say that Christ does not desire all men to be saved. The Bible makes it clear the Lord does desire men to be saved. The fact they will not come to God does not change this. And the fact that God has only chosen to save a number of sinners does not change this. If you want to turn me please to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 18. The book of Ezekiel and the chapter 18. In verse 23, the Lord is speaking, and he asks this question, Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? It is the pleasure of God for the wicked to turn from their ways and live. If you look at me at verse 30 of the same chapter, speaking about judgment that would come upon those who are wicked in Judah, we read at the end, in the middle of the verse, God says, Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you 
all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed. And in verse 32, the, the statement is made plain again. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. God says, I have got no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, but that they would turn from their way and live. God has a pleasure in souls being saved. If you want to turn me, please, to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. And the verse 37. Christ looks over Jerusalem. He looks over even those of whom he has been speaking in this chapter where he's given woe after woe after woe to the Pharisees and to the hypocrites. And yet at the end of the chapter, in verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee. And that's referring to the Pharisees or the hypocrites. He says, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings? And ye would not. Christ sees himself and describes himself here as one who would love for those that come into him, that look unto him for salvation and protection, to come under his wing, as it were. And indeed in Mark chapter 10, 21, we read of the rich young ruler and we read that Jesus Christ beholding this rich young ruler, even though he has refused to believe in Christ for salvation, we read that Jesus beholding him loved him. You see, true Calvinism teaches that it is clear in God's word that God does not desire the death of the wicked, but that they turn from their way and live. So if we are to fulfill our role on this earth, we are to do the work of the Lord, that which God has given us, and it is to offer all men God's forgiveness and mercy if they would repent and believe the gospel. This question of should all men be offered God's mercy and grace actually opens up two other questions. One of those is, does God love all men, or does he just love some men? And does the teaching of reprobation necessitate God not desiring men to repent and live. If I was to ask you tonight for a show of hands, I'll not do it. Does God love all men? I wonder how you'd answer. Does God love all men? Or does he just love some men? I wonder what you'd answer as a Calvinist. The hyper-Calvinist will turn around and say God does not love all men. Psalm 7.11 makes it clear God is angry with the wicked every day. But what does true Calvinism teach? True Calvinism teaches that while God loves some men in a special and saving way, God loves all men in a general and caring way. For example, Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, we read these words. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. The Lord is full of compassion, and his tender mercies are over all his works. In Acts 14, 17, we read that God, quote, left not himself without witness, and that he did good, and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. The Apostle Paul spoke those words to a pagan and heathen people. In Matthew 5.45, Christ himself said, Regarding the Lord his Father, he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And in fact, in Luke 6, verse 35, Christ tells us, Love ye your enemies and do good, 
and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be called the children of the highest. Why? For he that is God is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. God has not called you and I to a higher standard than God himself. He calls us to be like him in the fact that, in the fact of loving enemies. God calls us to love our enemies and to do good to your enemies because God himself has a love for enemies and does good even to them. Should all men be offered God's mercy and grace? Well, I'd put it to you that all men should. Because God has no desire and no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that they turn from their way and live. How does God himself speak to the lost and to the wicked and to this world collectively? Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Christ says to all before him, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Romans 10, 12, the 13, there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. People will not end up in hell and be able to charge God and say, God, you never offered me mercy and grace. You never showed me kindness. You never showed me goodness. People will end up in hell. And all they'll be able to say is, God offered me mercy and grace, but I never wanted it. And that will be one of the great torments of hell. Does God love everybody? While he will love some in a special and saving way, he loves everybody in a general and caring way. And he wants everybody to be offered the gospel. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature. And of course, there is the practical challenge, therefore. God does not just want us to tell our families or to tell everybody in Analong, but to tell everybody in County Down, to tell everybody in Northern Ireland, for every, everybody in the UK to hear, everybody in, throughout the world to hear, every single boy, girl, man, woman, everybody to hear the gospel. Now, some people will look at theology books and will turn around and say, well, hold on a minute. Theology talks about election, and God electing to save a people, but the Bible also talks about what's known as reprobation. Does reprobation not teach that God has an active hatred towards the non-elect? <coughs> to the hyper-Calvinist, they will look at it and say that before God made the world, God chose, yes, to elect some, but he also chose to damn some. And what they do is they place reprobation on exactly the same level as election. God's sovereign choice in both. It both was an act of choice. I'm going to elect some, see if someone put them in one bag, I'm definitely going to damn others and put them in that bag. My understanding of Calvinism is that the term reprobation comes from the Latin reprobar, which means to pass over. Instead of reprobation being the active choice of God to damn men, which would make it equal to election, reprobation is the result of God choosing not to save some men. Making God's active choice was I'm going to save some, 
And what happens to everybody else is as a result of their own sin. The reason people go to hell is not because God actively chose them to go to hell, but simply because of their own sin and their own choice. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, Election is all of God's grace. Reprobation is all of man's sin. So the question again comes, should all men be offered God's mercy and grace? Well, let us not fall into the ditch here. And think, well, God must have an act of hatred towards all men, so I can't offer all men the gospel. I can only offer it to the elect. And if I want to know who the elect are, well, I must need to see signs of the Spirit working in them before I can even offer them the gospel. No. God has a general caring love for every single soul. And he tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. To offer God's mercy and forgiveness in Christ to every creature. Let us not fall off the ditch. If we're to fulfill the whole reason why we're here, we must teach God's truth, not man's idea of it. God has a general love for all men, and he's got no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn from their way and live. God wants all men to hear the gospel. God wants people to hear the gospel because God himself is love. And God wants us as believers to not only tell the truth, but to do so with an earnest love. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, the Apostle Paul said, We are ambassadors for Christ. And he goes on to say, We pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. Some people could think, well, I'm a Calvinist, you know, God's only going to save certain people, and God's going to save them anyway, so okay, I have to tell the truth to everybody. But you know what? You know, God's going to do it anyway, so I'll, I'll just tell the truth and that's it. No, we're to tell it with a love, we're to tell it with a passion, we're to tell it with an earnestness, because God is love, and he wants us to act in love, to preach the gospel in love. As the Apostle Paul himself, we pray you in Christ's name, be you reconciled to God. If you look up Strong's Concordance for that term, we pray you, it is we beg you, we plead with you, be reconciled to God. Calvinism, true Calvinism, is not some cold, formal, ritualistic preaching or evangelism. It is passionate, God-honoring, Christ-like, earnest love, begging people to be reconciled to God. Do we not read in Acts 20 that Paul warned men day and night with tears? Do we not read in Romans 9 that Paul would pray earnestly for the souls of his own countrymen? He longed for people to be saved. This is not some cold, well, God's going to save them anyway, and sure, all I've got to do is just do my little bit. No, we are to earnestly desire that men come to know the Lord in salvation. That is true Calvinism. Our whole purpose on this earth, the whole reason why we woke up this morning with breath in our lungs, is that through prayer and through practice, and through our lives and through our words, that God would use us this day for the fulfillment of his commission. That people will be added to his work and to his kingdom. Let me ask you a third question. Should men be directed to Christ, to look to Christ for salvation? Should men be directed to look to Christ for salvation? The hyper-Calvinist on one end says no. Their logic is that Christ has not died for all men but the elect only. Christ has not salvation for all men but the elect only. 
And therefore Christ's salvation must therefore not be offered to all men but the elect only because Christ does not desire all men to be saved. And I've already mentioned the result therefore is this, if you imagine this scenario. A hyper-Calvinist preacher, he tells his congregation there are two types of people in the world. There are those whom God loves and has chosen to save, but then there's also those whom God hates and has chosen to damn. A person from the congregation, just imagine in this scenario, comes up to the preacher and says they want to be in the grip of those that are saved. The hyper-Calvinist preacher will turn around and say, well, you need to look within yourself. Because the only ones that Christ will save are those that are thirsty and those that are heavy laden with their sin. You need to work out first and foremost if the Spirit's working in your heart and life. You need to work out first and foremost before you even look to Christ and call upon him for salvation. You need to work in your, look in your own life. Look in your own heart first. To see if you are thirsty and heavy laden with your sin. Until you are sure that the Spirit of God is actually working in you, until you are sure that you're one of the elect, well then there's no point calling upon God. Because God will never save you unless you're actually one of the elect. You need to make sure you're one of the elect first before you even look to Christ. You and I can think of the many repercussions of all of that. People wondering, am I thirsty enough? Am I heavy laden with my sin enough? Just recently I spoke with somebody who was brought up in a hyper-Calvinistic church. And she was telling me that for a long time she was never sure whether she was actually saved or not. Because she was never sure whether she was really one of the elect or not. Because as she looked within she didn't know whether she had a heavy enough burden for her sin or not. Whether she was thirsty enough or not. She didn't know if she was one of the elect. Because God either loves, he only loves his elect and then he hates the damned. So she needs to work out if she's one of the elect or not. Because no matter what she says or does or calls, if she's not one of the elect, well God will never save her anyway. So she has to keep looking within. 